0: Welcome to Overcoming Working Mum Burnout, mindset and managerial solutions to unrealistic expectations and gender inequality at home and work. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, a working mum, behaviour scientist, and burnout survivor. I talk with burnout researchers, HR experts, and life coaches about the real reasons Working Mums Burnout. We identify behavior change strategies that support and empower working mums to continue to grow and to advocate for change at home, work, and in society at large. When mums thrive at work and at home, the world benefits. This week I'm learning about Bouncing Back from Burnout with author, podcast host, and burnout expert Caitlin Donovan.
1: So, my name is Kate Donovan, and my current role is as a burnout recovery specialist who does one on one coaching, corporate events, and hosts a podcast. Thank you so much for your time today, Kate. Please, can you describe your journey uh, to where you are now in your career? I left track on to medical school to study Chinese medicine instead. And part of that decision was to avoid burnout. I didn't realize it at the time, but that's what it was. And I met someone moved my entire life with my master's degree in acupuncture and Chinese medicine to Poland, started a practice there, was extremely successful beyond what I had imagined. And it crushed me. And I told my husband, I need to get the heck out of here because it's this country's fault, which turned out to not be hundred percent true. So I moved internationally again from Poland to the Czech Republic. And I found after a couple of years that I was still not really recovered, but up until that time, I had never really heard the word burnout. So I didn't know what was happening. I read an article one day, those moments where you know that something is true and your whole body just buzzes with recognition and resonance of, oh no, that's it. And that was like, for me, that was reading your whole book. Oh, thank you. That's so nice to hear. And. I realized that and I stopped and I thought, God, I have so much knowledge. I'm a stress management expert by design. Chinese medicine is all about how different stressors, internal and external, affect the body. So how did I end up here? And I did what I do and I dug into research and I spent two and a half to three years both recovering and doing research. And then people started to ask for my help. And saying, I feel this too. You're writing about this thing. I feel this too. Can you help me? And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Can I? So I, I worked with people for free in the beginning because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And now I built an entire business around saving female entrepreneurs from the grand success of their own businesses. And I'm really intrigued
0: that you went into the Chinese medicine. Recently, my stepsister graduated as a naturopath, and we heard as part of the graduation process, the Chinese medicine oath. And it made me weep. It made me cry. It was so beautiful. And I think it's just so important that you mentioned you were possibly preventing burnout by moving away from being a physician, because I think physician burnout is just so high. And it's something that's really dear to my heart too, because I was in the school of medicine and I've seen the statistics on female physician burnout being so much higher than other groups and it leading to severe health problems and sometimes suicide and those rates are much higher in female physicians. I think you were so right to protect yourself in that way. One of the things I really noticed in your book that I appreciated was you described that burnout could happen more often. And and like you said, it still was, either you were still in burnout recovery, or you have actually had multiple burnout episodes. And I think that was really helpful for me to hear, because I think One, I have this fear of it happening again. So that is definitely problematic. But I also think accepting that it can, but knowing that I'm prepared for it would be so much more helpful. And I really felt that came out of your book. I got this sense of that you had my back in that book. And that's what you're trying to get me into a place of where I would have my back. So tell me a little bit more about that potential repetition of burnout.
1: I love that you got that out of the book. It makes me so happy because you never know how people are going to interpret your words. I've had a lot of people send quotes from my own book to me that I didn't think were important or worthy really, that they were like, this set of words changed my life. And I'm like that sentence, but three sentences later, I say something real smart, but it wasn't about the smart things. It was about the feelings. And what you're saying now is this relapse, this repetition is why bounce back ability is so important to me. It's not just even about if you're going to burn out again, or if you do burn out again, it's just about life in general, things are going to happen. No matter who you are, no matter what circumstances you have, things are going to happen. And this was a really big thing for me because I was working with people who were at the top of the financial chain. And they were struggling and suffering so much. And then they were feeling guilty that they were suffering and struggling because they had money. And they thought, as long as I have money, I shouldn't suffer because people have it worse than me. And so we all get stuck in at every different stage of life and every different set of class circumstances and financial circumstances. We get stuck in these moments of life that really get us down and understanding that deep down, we do have the ability to bounce back. Is more important to me than anything else. When I first was crashing and I didn't know it was burnout yet, I had gained weight. I was real angry all the time. Poland is sort of an angry country anyway. So I absorbed that energy and I was really down on myself for being that person. I expected more of myself. And so I was digging my hole even deeper because I was in a hole. And then I was saying, You're shit for being in a hole, which was obviously not helpful. And then when I left Poland and I had a little bit of recovery time, but still didn't realize I was burnt out, so wasn't actually focused on recovering from burnout, I just skated through the same motions all over again. I overgave to my patients. I was overly concerned with giving people more than they were asking for. I was trying to be everything to everyone. I was taking care of old ladies on the tram who were not asking for my help, and I was so busy being the same person that I was and not adjusting my own behaviors, that I ended up in the same place a couple of years later. And that's when I finally read the word burnout and thought, oh, okay, time to do something about. And that's what's so fascinating to me,
0: too. I I didn't know I was burning out at the time. And it was only, I would say, two, two, at least two years after my burnout that I started to read about it and recognize it what on earth can we do about that? Because I think it's so important. I I feel like that who is coming to listen to our podcast? Are they the people going through burnout or are they really the people afterwards and in recovery? Because I wish we could help people connect with this term while it's happening to them. And I don't really know how to change that. Obviously burnout is coming up more often, but do you have any thoughts on that?
1: That's what we're doing with the podcast. That's what we're doing by posting things and creating content for people to come across. It's much more prevalent now because of the pandemic, this sort of sense of uncertainty that we've all been living through is a huge factor in how our stress system works in our bodies. So there's not really a lot that any of us could do about that. This was an external circumstance that took over a lot of our fear responses, anxiety responses, control responses. And so we're all living in it together right now. I don't know too many people that don't feel burnt out at the moment. So I think that by creating the things that we're creating, we're already starting that conversation. I know that people that are finding my podcast now are people that are in the thick of it. These are people that are getting online and saying, am I burnt out? Like when I ask them, how did you find the podcast? They say, I typed, am I burnt out into Google? And it came up. So it's now I think we're getting to that place where people are like, oh, okay, I can look for help for this. There are people that know things about this. And to be honest, it's a sort of a wild west frontier kind of situation because I'm doing an extra degree right now in biobehavioral studies, which is the integrative study of how stress affects the body. So this is the Western version of, of Eastern medicine. And there's just so little we know. So there's a lot of people that are saying, I've been through burnout. I know I can help you because X, Y, Z, and I'm reading it and I'm saying, that's not what the, that's not what it, no. So we're getting more information out there, but we really have to be careful because there's a lot we don't really know yet. A lot of the things even I say on my podcast, are theories that I have and hypotheses that I have that have not always been tested yet. They've been tested in my own life and in my clients' lives, but that doesn't make them necessarily 100% true. We have to let people know that it exists, and we also have to remember to create space for the fact that we don't know everything about it.
0: And it's new in terms of having the World Health Organization designation, and hopefully there will be more research on it going forward, because. I definitely noticed when I was looking at the literature as well, what came up mostly around physician burnout, because that's really where this all started. So it's not new. Like you and I have both talked about that. It's over 50 years old in terms of when we first started paying attention to it. But I think it's definitely changing.
1: We've been talking about this for 200 years, but because it's a, I would classify it as a sin because there's a lot of different aspects that can be attached to it that possibly has other multi-layered diagnostics involved in it. There could be some other mental disorder. You're more likely to burn out if you have some sort of neurodiversity Right, There can also be some sort of physical disorder because when your body doesn't have the same strength as a typical body, then you're going to be more prone to burnout because you don't have the same energy reserves as other people, but your job still expects the same amount from you. So I think that we really have to create a lot of space for what the definition of this word is going to be as we move forward. And
0: I'm certainly here as a resource for you or or for others to think about how we do Create a research agenda around this as well. But I think that's when people see that in their friends and colleagues, that they are seeing burnout and seeing loss of scientists. So back to that physician burnout that we talked about at the beginning. One of the things that really concerns me in the research space is that if we don't have female researchers, especially female physician researchers, we will not be researching female health problems. And I know burnout affects all genders, but really the research has showed us that when there aren't female researchers leading projects, female health problems do not get addressed. And, and they're only now just starting to learn all these de- gender differences in how diseases like heart disease present, even how the chemical presentation in the body is different. So it's just, hold on, we, we really know so little about women's health. And yet, if we burn out our female researchers' we're not going to get much further with it. So I think it's hilarious that you said people send you quotes from your book. So this was what I was about to say. Your book is so quotable. (laughs) There's so many quotes in there. So one that I I really resonated with me was the the self-help hamster wheel. Oh my goodness. I have been on that self-help hamster wheel for sure. And I think it's so important to that difference that I really felt that you conveyed in your book was being positive and feeling that you were positive as the author of this book, but not this false positivity. It's that basically you're saying, if you're positive to the point where you're not processing the the information, the emotions you're feeling, then that is problematic. So I think that is where I was on that self-help hamster wheel, trying to help myself, but not actually doing the real thing to help myself, which is your sitting in the mug. Again, another fantastic idea. And I think some of the other parts of your book that I really resonated with me was again that you followed all the rules. That is me. I'm such a rule follower. And you still
1: burnt. I still burned out. And something that you just said, I think is actually really important because there's I have this idea. Now again, this is a hypothesis. this I have not tested this theory. I've not done any research on it. I have spoken to hundreds and hundreds of women that are burnt out. So I have a little bit of insight into this. but we are so trained to be good students. And those of us who were good students and got praised for being good students got praised for our intelligence. We cut ourselves off from our bodies. So I burnt out and I had all this knowledge, but I didn't have any wisdom. And I'm not going to say that I'm a wise old woman right now. I'm 39 years old. But there is something different between having intellectual information that resonates with you and embodying that intellectual information until it becomes body-based wisdom. This is why we can't take breaks because we're in our head saying, oh, uh," she said I should take a break when I'm at a seven out of 10, not a 10 out of 10. But you don't know what seven out of 10 feels like, because you're not in your body. And I did this for I still do it sometimes, let's be honest. But I did this for years and years. I read the books. And I said, I know this now. So I'm safe. But it didn't I didn't I knew it, but I didn't know it. So how do you get that transition? How do you get people to
0: get into their body then? Yeah, because that's so important.
1: To me, it's about actually practicing and implementing the things that you're reading. So it's just practice. It's nothing more than practice because you can read a book like mine and not do any of the exercises in it. And it might make you feel better while you're reading it. But if you don't actually take the time to do the things, you're not making forward progress. You're just finding a thing that says, oh, thank God, this sounds like me. I'm not alone which is helpful on a neurological level. It makes your nervous system feel safer. So that's not a terrible thing and it's not it's not awful. But if you don't actually practice any of the things, you're still doing the things that you've always done. So this is practicing yoga nidra. This is taking the time to look into your filters. This is taking the time to find out what your values are. And values is one of these things that, once you state them in the right way. So there's a lot of values exercises that are like circle the value kind of thing. And in my book and in my website, I ask you to create an action statement out of your value. So if your value is freedom, when I read your action statement, I need to know and understand on a very deep level what freedom means to you. And when you start to unwind what things mean to you, so what do I mean by family? You have to start digging into yourself a little bit. So for me, freedom is the opportunity to have lunch with a girlfriend in the middle of the week because I built a business that allows me to freedom is the ability to say one of my in-laws is having some sort of health trouble. Freedom is my ability to hop on a plane and get to Poland and take care of them and not worry about having to adjust too many things in my life. That's what freedom is to me, but that's not what it means to everybody. For some people, it means money, which is cool. But let's be specific about what that means. So part of getting into your body is practicing, paying attention to what you feel when you're doing things. How's my body feeling now? What's happening in my stomach? Oh, I just had tightness in my chest. Was it because I feel anxious? What did this person say to me? Why did I feel unsafe? So it's about exploring. But part of it is just practicing things in a deeper way is asking the question. I think this is one of the most important questions you can ever ask yourself is what do I mean by insert whatever word you're thinking about here. I ask this question to my coaching clients constantly because they say, I would love to have whatever it happens to be. And I say, but what does that mean? How are you going to know when you get it? What does it feel like in your body? Where is it located? So one of the things that I definitely struggled with,
0: and I think that comes up. Based on your comment about freedom, was my fear of freedom. And actually, I did a visualization exercise once with one of my coaches around freedom. And she said, Imagine what would freedom look like for you? And I was thinking about this just big green grass. And she said, I Go towards it. And I started to almost have a panic attack. And I have this fear of freedom because for me, as a mom, that's so many times I felt like I want to escape. And It's really hard to know that you need a break and you do need some time away from your family. But if your values tell you also that's not what a good mom does, it's so hard to want those things. So actually, these values that you talk about, I have really struggled with because in some ways, like honesty is a value. But I struggle to be honest with myself sometimes. I'm so afraid if I'm honest with people, and I hurt someone. So I've really found, to me, the things you're talking about are really hard to understand and face.
1: They are hard to understand and face, and that's why we need to practice. When we are intellectual people that have been praised for intelligence our whole lives, practicing something that we're not good at doesn't always come easy. We're just, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this. Nobody's good at this because we've never done this before. No one's ever taught us to do this. This is new information. The first time I did a values exercise, at least 10 years ago, and it was nonsense. I was like so generic with my values. They had nothing to do with what I really wanted and everything to do with what I thought people expected of me. So it took probably three or four times. For me to start getting honest and that's where this sort of idea of freedom comes in for me like i really had to dig into what does that mean how do i make it safe what does that mean about my other values how does that affect this that and whatever like you have to take the time to really dig through you can have freedom as a mother while you're next to your children (laughs) freedom doesn't have to mean that you're separate maybe it does for you That's okay. So then the question comes down to when you say and feel freedom, what are you thinking of? What are you picturing? Because maybe the thing that you're thinking of and picturing is not actually something that you want. So it sounds nice on a values list, but it's not your real desire based on what you think that word means, not based on what I think that word means.
0: And I think part of that too is that we have to practice doing those things as well. We have to practice finding that freedom that we, we think taking a, a break is important. So for example, when I was speaking with Isabel Roskam, who's a parental burner expert, she was explaining that if you go to a restaurant to get a break from your family, and then you feel so, and it took you so much to organize, to get there. And then at the time, you just don't, enjoy it and you're not feeling it, then maybe that wasn't the break you needed. I totally agree with that. We need to work out what are our breaks. Maybe it isn't being sociable with other people. Maybe it is some time on your own. But I think the other part that the practice has to happen is the first time I really started to take breaks from my kids during COVID, I took them with me in my mind. So yeah, so I agree. We do have to kind of keep practicing and pushing ourselves. So also how do we remind ourselves to do that. How do you get your clients to really start to have these cues to remember to do these things, to remember to practice? Because again, I think that's so important with habit formation and behavior change.
1: Yeah. I, I practice habit stacking because that's the easiest way to get things done. So for people that don't know what habit stacking is, it's taking something that you are already doing and adding one more event to it. So if every morning You make yourself a cup of coffee and you then sit down and enjoy your cup of coffee. And you'd really love to add in two minutes of breathing before you start your day, but you can't seem to fit it in then you build it into your coffee. So either while the coffee is brewing, or as soon as you put it in your hands, your first 120 seconds are breathing while you're inhaling your coffee through your nose, which is fine. You can sit there. You don't have to be in a lotus position to get the benefit of a breathing exercise. So you can sit there and hold your coffee. And just before you take your first sip, take two minutes to breathe. So we work on cues like that. So what cue are you going to use that's already a part of your day that we can add things to. I don't subtract behaviors, especially in the very beginning, because it's too hard and it's not successful and it doesn't work. I also don't usually go at things directly. So let me think of an example. If you're trying to reduce your level of fear, so you've decided to use an affirmation that says, I am brave in the face of whatever. I haven't found that to be really successful for people, especially people that are burnt out because the research keeps showing that there's a disconnect between our animal brain and our executive brain. And when that disconnect is there, we're not really processing our emotions properly. We're not filtering our emotions properly. So just saying, oh, I feel brave. It's not actually connecting in your brain. So it's not really doing much. It's the same reason that gratitude is such a hard thing. When you're burnt out, you don't actually feel it. So it doesn't have the benefit that it can have on a nervous system level when you're burnt out. So instead of saying, I feel brave and trying to push your way through to a new way of being forcefully, we ask questions like, what could you do in this situation to feel 5%? So we go in through the back. We don't make you courageous. We make you feel safe so that your fear becomes lessened. Does that make sense? Totally.
0: And I think it's so important that you talk about things like gratitude when you're in burnout that you can't necessarily experience their benefits, because I think that was also really important in your book. And it's sort of part of that being on that self-help hamster wheel is that some of the things that could help you. You're not able to benefit from. And then again, as you said, how our brain is changing during burnout so that it it is deteriorating the whole time. Your ability to cope is getting less and less. And that's when we start really beating ourselves up because we start to know, like you said that about yourself too, we start to know what we need and then that it doesn't work for us. And and that is then this sort of spiral of self-blame and other things.
1: So, I started asking, how can I get this to myself without going at it directly? What could be in place so that this would be easier? Right. So, if you have a fear of this freedom, but it is something that you want to create, then the question becomes, what can we do that would make this feel safer? And I like
0: that. It's almost like I'm really into reverse engineering. So,
1: it is, it's that. Yeah. Yes. It is reverse engineering. It's the backdoor method. And I don't hear a lot of people talk about this, but I feel like it's one of my most successful techniques as a coach, because we're taught so often to go straight into something. We're always like, just stand in the mirror and tell yourself that you feel beautiful. Maybe sometimes for some people in certain circumstances, but when your brain is not primed for that kind of action, our first step is always safety. We need your nervous system to know that you are safe. And in order for your nervous system to know that you are safe, we need to make your internal speak as safe as possible. We need to make your exterior, your environment as safe as possible. And what safety means to you is going to be different than what safety means to somebody else. So then we have to explore that. How do we add safety to your life so that your body is not on high alert all the time so that you can actually start to heal and move on with your life?
0: Thank you so much for addressing this issue because I really do think that is where it starts that you are in this state of fight or flight the whole time. And it's exhausting. It is exhausting. So that's an excellent description of how to do that. And and I love that you're coming at it from that way. Are there any other messages from the book or even exercises from the book that you'd like to share with listeners?
1: I think since we were talking about the gratitude, I think it's important to give people something to do in its place. So if you're trying to do gratitude exercises and you feel like you're lying to yourself and it's not making you feel any better, then instead of gratitude, the focus should be on resentment. And this doesn't mean you should be venting. It doesn't mean you're just supposed to spew out bile in every direction. But it does mean that if you take the time to notice where you're feeling resentful, that will clue you in as to where your boundaries are being broken, either by yourself, mostly by yourself or by someone else. And then you can decide what you need to do in order to adjust that. So either you'll need to adjust some sort of internal overgiving mechanism or meddling mechanism. That was the truth for me. So I don't say this as an accusation. I say this as a a vulnerable spew of what happened in my life. I was so over-involved with doing a lot for other people because I thought that was what made me valuable, that I was tired all the time because I couldn't give myself what I wanted, needed, desired, preferred because I didn't know what those things were because my energy was always up in somebody else's business. And I found those places because of resentment. So I would get a text from a particular friend and I'd be like, God, doesn't she get enough for me? What does she want now? She was like literally asking me to lunch and I was getting nasty in my head. Oh my God, what do you want from me? What do you need from me? When you start asking questions like that, you've usually given more than the other person has even asked for and you didn't get back things that you didn't ask for and now you're pissed. But the method isn't to create a new boundary with this person as conventional wisdom around boundaries would would tell you, like you need to create a boundary. No, you need to stop giving stuff where you're not being asked for anything. And you need to start speaking up when you need your friends to fulfill something for you. Those are the boundaries that need to be put into place. You need to do less and ask for more, mostly. And resentment will help you get there. So where are you feeling that resentment? What is it doing for you? What's the real message underneath it? So again, we're going backwards. So instead of going through gratitude and trying to force ourselves into this positive place that doesn't feel real to us at the moment, we actually use the emotions that we're having to get to a place where we're safer.
0: And I think resentment is a great one to to remind listeners about because, oh my goodness, I was so in such a bad space of resentment, resentment to my colleagues and resentment to my husband and admitting it was so hard because again, feeling bad about being that person, but really just saying, okay, this is a symptom of what I am going through because I'm not a bad person and I wouldn't normally feel like this, but this is in my head. So often it's an indicator that something's going wrong. And I I do think it's such a great symptom that people can relate to and then start to go, okay, maybe if I'm feeling this is me being in burnout. So I'm glad you brought that one up because I think a lot of people can relate to that. And again, like you say, reverse engineering into, okay, where is that coming from? And I agree. It's also a great cue going forward. Because at the moment I had shared with you, my husband uh, broke his leg really badly last weekend and he's going to have to go into surgery and he's in such a bad space and I feel terrible about that. But also we had just got into a good space in our relationship where I was trying to take one week a month where I got away and really focused on my work and it was making my brain work again in ways that it hadn't and it was just really helping re-energize and fill me up so that the other three weeks of the month I could be the mom and wife and everyone that I wanted to be and now that's gone and so I it's so funny because somebody did ask if we wanted to go to a barbecue this weekend and I was like oh my god what do you expect of us and I was like oh yeah that's just such an unreasonable response they were just trying to include us in in their lives again
1: (laughs) And that happens a lot. Unreasonable responses. It's one of the most common things that people write when they fill out a form to chat with me the first time. Say, I'm being totally unreasonable with my family. I know it and they know it, but I can't seem to help myself. What do I do? Let's get into resentment. Let's figure this out so we can put in the right boundaries so you can adjust the things that you're offering inside. I've been married for 14 years this month. And when we first lived together. I had moved to Poland and I wasn't working right away because of course I didn't have a visa to work because I had just moved there from the US. So I moved there. I was learning Polish as best I could at the time. And I started doing all the things. So I was cooking, I was doing the shopping, I was doing laundry. I was doing all of those things because I was home. And I needed to keep myself busy because I had just moved to a foreign country where I didn't speak the language. And that became my role. And my husband is not a very typical like gender roles kind of person. It's just, he was working full-time and I wasn't working at all. So here we were. Once I started working, I kept up that same rhythm. (laughs) I just took on the extra work without being like, oh, by the way, I'm working now. So we need to adjust this. So now let's just travel through the years. I'm still doing the majority of it. Most of it I prefer to do, but some of it I could gladly give up. And he decided to do the laundry one day. This is just a few months ago. So I'm talking over 14 years I let this pile up. He does a little laundry. And when I do the laundry, I get it out of the dryer, I fold it, and I put all of our clothes away. Now, we just moved into a new home last year, so we have this beautiful walk-in closet that we organized together so I know where his stuff is and he knows where my stuff is. In the past, that wasn't the case, so him putting away my clothes was difficult because he didn't know where anything went. But now, there's no excuse in my mind. So I do the laundry, put the clothes away. He does the laundry. He puts his clothes away and leaves mine on a pile on the bed. And I was a furious. I was like, dude, what the hell? I've been putting your laundry away for 14 years. Like, why would you leave my where it all goes? We have this closet. It's a walk-in closet, but it's not that big. And neither of us have that much clothing. We, we are minimalists in that regard. So how difficult can this be? And he looked at me and he said, I never asked you to put my clothes away. And I don't honestly care if you do. Oh, <gasps> Wow. <laughs> And I was like, this is what I teach people every day. <laughs> and I stopped. And so the next time I did the laundry, I left his stuff on the bed and I felt awful about it. You're going to feel awkward when you first take that freedom, when you first do that thing. It's going to come with some discomfort. But when you practice, you find that you don't mind leaving the laundry on the bed anymore. I don't even care if he doesn't put it away for a week. It can go on the floor for all I care. I'm not doing it unless... I really want it all to be finished, in which case I know that I'm making a decision for myself to get this job done, not because he expects it, but because I want it done. And that's my boundary. That has nothing to do with him. But I blamed him.
0: This is such a great, really solid, kind of simple example of boundaries and where we get lost.
1: Yeah. Unspoken agreements will trip us up every time. There's tons of unspoken agreements, especially in relationships where you just started doing something one day and 15 years later, you're still doing it and you never spoke about it. It's just happening. And then you're mad about it, but you've never spoken about it. So what are we doing here?
0: And it is that I had the same, a similar conversation with my husband recently, when we were trying to work out, how do I get some time for myself? And and what I said to him was, I have always believed that we were going to do this 50-50. We never talked about it. But the whole time we've been together, that has been my assumption. And so anything that's not that, I'm mad about. And he was just so shocked. (laughs) I was like, how could you imagine knowing who I am and how much I care about equality that it wouldn't be that? And again, it just hadn't occurred to him.
1: Well, and it hadn't occurred to you to say anything either. No, exactly. And that's the thing. These unspoken assumptions are, and unspoken agreements are a massive boundary issue that really don't always involve another person. Like we just, we make this stuff up all in our own little space. And then we get mad at people for stuff they don't even understand. Didn't you get the rule book that I did not give you
0: when we, I know it would be so helpful if we actually also did write that rule book for ourselves, because I don't think we even know. And I've heard other coaches describe that we have this manual of operations that we have for other people, how they're supposed to treat us, but we've never shared it with anyone.
1: Well, we have it for everything, like how you're supposed to cut an onion and how you're supposed to fold a towel and how you're supposed to make a bed. We have all these rules that nobody knows about, but we decide they're correct And this is something that you'll understand, like you move internationally and you're in some sort of international relationship or international situation and you realize the rules are different here. Is this wrong? Is this right? Is this polite? Is this rude? It depends.
0: One that really bothered me when I was living in Germany was how close somebody would stand to you on the escalator. (laughs) I found that really hard. Let's talk about this. So tell me less about some of the behavioral cultural differences, but tell me about some of the solutions that you've um, seen from around the world and either incorporated into your practice or international solutions that you're seeing at the business level that companies are doing well. When somebody pointed that out to me, that I can bring international um, perspectives to this podcast. I I've, I hadn't appreciated that about myself. I'd forgotten. And so I'm really excited to speak to someone like you that really has that so many different cultures you've lived in, but also that you're also focused on the solutions like I want to be. So tell me a little bit about either in companies or in your personal practice, what you think we could incorporate more here in the US?
1: The very first thing, which is so simple and so not a problem, and we are so concerned about the financial aspects of this that we don't realize that continents have been doing this successfully for years and years, vacation time and maternity leave, paternity leave, parental leave. I don't care whose it is, everybody's, anybody's, everybody's, anybody's, doesn't matter. This is something that is so easily done in so many places. I was just on a Twitter feed that I had to lay down the law a little bit because someone was like, you can't expect companies to just fill a position temporarily by the time the person leaves and the other person comes in. By the time they learn the job, the woman's coming back to work. And whoa, what makes you think we're hiring replacements for people the day that they leave for maternity leave? That's not how any of this works. And because we're so accustomed in Europe to making adjustments for maternity leave, it's just a normal thing that happens. You tell your employers that you're pregnant earlier so that there's time to prepare, and then you make adjustments. It's not that hard. That's a thing that I think would save, especially when it comes to mothering, this section of time where you're in the United States, where you're supposed to leave your baby with someone else or stop working when your child is anywhere between eight to 12 weeks old is insane
0: and cruel. When I was pregnant, my friend in Germany was pregnant at the same time. And she started her maternity leave's eight weeks before her due date. So there she was at home and there was me, feet swollen to uh, balloons in the office, having to come home, try and cool down, get naps. The two experiences were just so different. And that's when I started to learn about how many women in the U.S. compared to internationally. We have so many preterm births here. And again, it's part of this whole how we're approaching pregnancy. And then afterwards as is, is well, I remember I was a postdoc at the time when I had my son and an HR person at the university basically saying to me, you want more than six weeks? And I was like, yes. I said, what can I do after six weeks? If I have a cesarean, I wouldn't be even whole by six weeks. And I don't have family here. She basically said, I just took six weeks. And I thought, oh my God, this is terrible. Somebody is actually shaming me for wanting to spend more time with my son.
1: And we know that on a neurological level, it's helpful for you as the mother to be with your child. Like that's its proper neurological development to be near the mother. And you can't do that when you're working eight to 10 hours a day outside of the home. It's just an unrealistic, inhumane, expectation that we have so I think that's the first thing that needs to shift and I think fathers need the ability to be home as well like I, I think it's just not healthy on any level not for the mother not for the father not for the companies because then you're there and you're only half there anyway you're still in baby brain I think that's the, the first thing that I would change
0: And that's one of the pieces I helped a company get a Time's Up article out. And we were talking about that in terms of how you adjust for somebody going on leave. It is a team effort to do that, that team members can benefit from this time because they can move up into a position and learn new skills. But it really is that you don't then leave this space and gap for the team to then bear in a negative way, because again, that does, that puts everyone against the whole concept of maternity leave. So I agree, it, it definitely has to be a group effort. And then I think the same with returning to work. We talked about that in this article, that the, there are lots of companies now that help with that, but you really need to have a plan for a return to work, not just assume that jump straight back in.
1: And then the next thing that I would talk about is uh, along the same veins is vacation time. In the States, even when you have vacation time, you're not really encouraged to take it. In Europe, if you don't use up all your vacation time, after March of the following year, you get paid for those days. So you have to take the time. Companies would rather you take the time than pay out. So they encourage you to take the time because it works out better for them. And. In the States, we have this idea that if people are gone for five weeks a year, everything is going to fall apart. I never took less than six weeks vacation a year when I was living in Europe, ever. And it was normal. People expected it. It's like, great, have a good time. You deserve the time to recharge. What a different attitude. And I think
0: even that focus on, for example, in uh, France, pretty much August, everything is closed. I remember my dad, when we first moved to Sweden, his factory that he um, worked in closed for a whole month. And he was shocked as an English person going to Sweden having that experience. But that's what I think is so important for CEOs to hear is if the whole company shuts down for a period, and everybody gets used to that and knows it's part of the the schedule in terms of deliverables, et cetera. Then nobody is having to, on vacation, look for emails because nobody's sending emails. Everybody can actually switch off fully. And I think some companies are starting to do that now, I'm hearing.
1: I think that it's a useful way to look at things. There are some companies that don't have that as an option, but I I think it's just this whole idea that everything is going to break down if we rest a little and it's just not. And there are natural lulls in every scenario. So I had a full-time acupuncture practice. I always shut down for Christmas and New Year's. Had I stayed open, I would have seen some people. But most people are too busy or are traveling or are spending their time with their families or whatever else they're doing. So it made more sense for me to just take that time off, enjoy my time with my family and my people and do that thing and just not worry about it. But when I talk to especially the female entrepreneur space, we need to learn how to build our schedules around vacations instead of trying to build a business And then try and fit vacations into it afterwards. We need to know that we're not going to be around for two weeks in August. We need to know that ahead of time because you need to be able to, like you said, plan accordingly for deliverables, for taking on new clients. So I typically am gone for the last week or two of August because it's my birthday time. I love the end of summer. So I don't take on new clients past the end of April, beginning of May, usually, unless when I talk to somebody because they book a call, I say, listen, we can start, but we're gonna have to extend the contract because I'm unavailable between this day and this day. So I set it up that way ahead of time so that people know what to expect. But I can't not go, you have to plan them in, especially when you're owning your own business. You have to plan that time in ahead so that I do not calculate my yearly expectations for money, or my bills based on 52 weeks of work. I calculate it on 45 weeks of work because that's how many I'm willing to do.
0: And since you mentioned the holidays there, this episode will be airing during December. So could you provide some tips for our listeners about how to manage holiday stress?
1: So this is where we go back to what we spoke about earlier. This is where we go into resentment. Before you go to be with your people, check your resentments and see if there is something that you can do for yourself in your own behavior that might adjust that relationship a little bit because oftentimes we fall into patterns really quickly and we do things that we assume other people are expecting, but they might not be. Learn to ask more questions ahead of time, get more clarity ahead of time and not automatically assume that you're always going to fulfill the roles that you've always fulfilled just because you've always fulfilled them, especially if you hate them. So getting clear on your resentments before you go so that you have the opportunity to make adjustments is key. The next thing that's really important is my therapist from the Czech Republic told me this, and I have not found a study to back it up, but it feels true in my body. So I'm going to share it anyway. She told me that. When you are with your family of origin, for anything over two hours and 45 minutes is the average, you immediately revert back to the role that you played as a child. So if you were the clown, or if you were the listener, or if you were the helper, or if you were the whatever it was that you did, however you acted, that system gets turned right on. And you start acting in ways that you're like, why do I act like this when I'm with my family? I don't act like this when I'm with other people. And when she said that, my heart dropped because I was like, oh, I can feel that. I know what that feels like. That moment where I'm like, my family's real sarcastic and I like to joke around, but I'm not that sarcastic anymore in a day-to-day life. But when I'm with them, I can be nasty. I don't even like it. But I think it's expected of me to be that sharp-witted, so I turn that back on. And so in order to feel comfortable with myself, I have to remind myself that's happening and that if I need to step away for five minutes to realign myself and recenter myself so I can act in accordance with who I am today, that I need to take off, even if it means sitting in the bathroom for five minutes by myself.
0: And I think that's so true. I find myself definitely going back into my childhood emotions (laughs) around my family. And again, it's not helpful because then I'm like a victim and blaming everybody. And I'm not seeing straight anymore in that position.
1: So knowing that that happens and prepping for it is important, I think.
0: Thank you so much. This has just been an amazing conversation. I could talk to you all day long. I'm so delighted. Um, to have had you here. And I really appreciate your perspective on this and because I definitely see that you're approaching it in a different way from others. And I love that unique way that you are approaching this burnout issue.
1: Thank you so much. First of all, thrilled to be here with you. And, and second of all, I feel that this really is my work. I'm supposed to say things a little bit different for all the people that are getting left behind by the typical advice. You know, I feel like that's the role I'm supposed to fill like I don't I like no soldier left behind on my watch. I feel like if we just flip the script a little bit, we can be more inclusive and we can be more helpful and we can be more understanding and we can create more safety. So my feel like my job with my information is to make people feel understood, seen, heard and safe. (laughs)
0: Thank you so much for listening today. You can find helpful resources from each guest and key takeaways on the podcast website at www.drjacquelinekerr.com podcast. You can download additional resources on the website, including this week's behavior change guide, which focuses on addressing resentment to reduce burnout. I would love to hear your burnout story. Which key takeaways helped you? Ideas for topics you want me to cover or guests to interview? Please complete the feedback form on the website, again, drjacquelinekerr.com podcast, or comment in the episode post in LinkedIn under Dr. Jacqueline Kerr. I want to learn more about meeting your needs. If you are enjoying these episodes, please rate, review, And subscribe or follow the podcast wherever you listen. Thank you. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Take control, you're a fighter. See